Good morning, church. I'm Tyler. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Westview. Welcome to everyone who's watching this morning or whenever it is that you are watching. Happy Thanksgiving. But maybe for you, Thanksgiving looks a little different this weekend. Maybe for you, Thanksgiving this time around, well, it means a few less people around the dinner table. So maybe it's a chance to cook a little less. Or maybe for you, you really wish that you were cooking a lot more. I know that on days like this, the reality of the times that we're in, it really feels like it hits home, doesn't it? So church, as we begin this morning, pray with me. Jesus, thank you for this chance that we have. This chance that we have to hear from you, from your word. And I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that we would experience in our hearts a greater depth of gratitude and thankfulness. So help us to get there this morning, Holy Spirit. And I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So church, the Apostle Paul in chapter 4 of the book of Philippians says this. He says, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So help me out for a second, church, because it's a verse that might be very familiar to you but it's a verse that I feel like it's kind of it's kind of divided into two parts. You see, the first part feels like it's more written like a command, and the, and the second half is written more like a question. So you might be asking yourself this morning, why is he pondering the grammatical structure of a verse? Well, it's because, like I said, this weekend is Thanksgiving, and this is supposed to be a Thanksgiving sermon. But I'm going to go right out and say it. And maybe you feel the same way. It kind of feels like in 2020 this year, there isn't a whole lot to be thankful for. I don't know if you noticed it, but the New York Post uh, released an article a few weeks ago. And they titled it, 2020 Events So Far. Yep, these major events all happened this year. Let me share just some of them, not even all of them that were on this list. Uh, you might remember the Australian brush fires or Prince Harry and Meghan Markle quitting the royal family, the COVID-19 pandemic, the economic shutdown, the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, the Black Lives Matters protests, murder hornets, and the West Coast wildfires. And it's hard to believe that there was even more on the list. This wasn't everything. So help me out here, church, because... This is why I'm pondering the grammatical structure of Paul's second half of Philippians 4.8. He says this again. If there is anything excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If. It's that word if. If there is anything excellent. If there is anything worthy of praise. Then, Paul says, think about these things. So can I ask you something this morning and be honest with me? Do you feel like there is much in 2020 that we could say was excellent? What about praiseworthy? 
I don't know if you saw that meme that went around. It said this, and the image is on your screen. Listen carefully, Marty. Whatever you do, don't set it to 2020. I don't know about you, but I grew up watching the Back to the Future trilogy. I even actually saw the third installment in theaters, so that gives you a bit of an understanding of how old I am. But I understand the humor that's at play here. Because for many, we can't be naive to the fact that 2020 has been an incredibly hard year. So, if I could say one thing, one thing as we get going here in this sermon, it's this. Thanks for nothing. So I want to invite you, open up your Bibles, turn on your apps, whatever it is, but we want to spend some time this morning looking at Romans chapter 8. Verses 35 to 39. Words will be on the screen. Let me read them for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed each day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Was that the direction you thought perhaps the sermon was going? Because if you were to ask me what scriptures in this season have been helpful, have been ones that I have clung to during these months of trial and struggle, it would be this. It would be Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. These verses have already actually been at the centerpiece of a wedding speech I did earlier this year for a couple whose entire wedding ceremony was completely flipped upside down as a result of the pandemic. And I know they're just one of many who have had to pivot this language we've learned in this pandemic to make alternative arrangements because of what's happened. And it brings me to my first point this morning. Because just like this couple, many of us in this season have felt loss. We pick it up again in verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? You see, verse 35 begins with an important question. A question that we all really, I think, need to hear. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Other translations, perhaps you've read, have it said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, it's written almost in a rhetorical sense, except for the fact, the fact that Paul will give an answer to this later on in these verses. But it's an all-too-important reminder that he's speaking to the church in Rome and also speaking to us as modern-day believers. 
Paul's writing this letter as a means of reminding those who follow Christ of the way in which we live out our faith in the actual world that we find ourselves in. And as I said, incidentally, the same goes for you and me, for how we ought to live our lives in the actual world, in the everyday stuff of life. And what the Apostle Paul does here is he identifies that that loss and, and grief and pain are an all too real part of the Christian faith. Yes, it's true that those who have yet not committed their lives to Jesus experience an even greater sense of loss because they don't have that, that peace in their lives that, that only Christ can truly offer us when we accepted his gift of salvation. But it doesn't mean as followers of Christ that, that we somehow get this kind of get out of jail free card, that we escape the emotional pain when we walk through seasons of grief and loss. No. I mean, we felt this firsthand in, in my own family. Charity, my wife lost an uncle due to his contraction of COVID-19 just a few months ago. We've got personal friends who have felt the economic strain on their businesses during this time. As a church staff, we're all so well aware of many people who have felt the effects and who have suffered as a result of this pandemic. It's why I titled this sermon this morning, Thanks for Nothing. Because it honestly feels like sometimes that's the only response we can give during this time And if we look a little bit closer at verse 36, it seems to get even darker before the dawn. It reads, as the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's quoting directly from Psalm 44, 22. And he reinforces the all real, all too real risks that that believers faced as they lived out their faith in their culture and context. And I think that there's an all too real sense for Christians to think that because the love of Christ is so so real and so unshakable, that we need not fear that we'll run into any trouble. Scripture shows that while the love is sure, so are troubles. I think Paul's point here is pretty clear. That persecution, grief, and loss These are not things that a Christian escapes once they surrender their lives to Christ. But what it does mean, I think he picks up now in verse 37. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. You see, church, this morning we can experience victory. Well, it's not even that we can experience victory. In Christ, we have victory. That we have victory. The battle may rage on, but the war has already been won. Why? Well, Paul gives the answer to that rhetorical question that he asked earlier. And it's our second point that I want us to look at this morning. And it's love. And so we read on in verses 38 and 39. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. 
No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So church, let me say it again this morning. Thanks for nothing. Because here in these two verses, we are given, I think, one of the greatest promises in Scripture. There are few other promises, in my opinion, that are are greater than this. That nothing can ever separate us from God's love. That nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. If none of these things that Paul lists here in verse 39 can separate us from the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus, then we are assured. We are assured that God will keep us secure in his great love. Isn't that amazing, church? That we can take hold of that and believe that, to know that it's true. So Paul lists 10 things here. 10 things that that could hypothetically separate us from the love of God. And what he does is he kind of arranges them into four sets of pairs and and then a couple of signals kind of at the end. I want to look at those a little bit closer this morning with us. And the first pair is this, death and life. I don't think we're naive to to the finality of death. That's why for so many people, death is one of their greatest, if not the greatest fear in their life. Because it's clear that no one escapes it. But yet as followers of Christ, we can take heart because like what Paul says, to to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm pretty sure we've heard that old adage, there's only two certainties in life and, and that's death and taxes and for years, wasn't that kind of at the heart of the Alberta advantage that, that at least if you moved here to Alberta, you kind of felt like you were cheating it a little bit by, by not having to pay the provincial sales tax? But, but death, you see, this is where it's interesting with death. You see, for the Christian, yes, death still means kind of a, a separation from loved ones. It's still a painful moment. You see, but for those who don't hold to this system of belief, saving faith in Jesus Death is something that's feared, it's, it's avoided, it's, it's barely spoken of. But you see, if the person who's put their faith, their, their faith in the saving work of Jesus as Lord, death doesn't signify the end of the journey, it's actually just the beginning. You see, not even the finality of death can separate us from the love of Jesus. In fact, in death for the first time, we experience the love of Christ in his glorious presence. So then why is life included in this list? Well, other than it's the opposite of death, I think the reality that Paul wants us to understand here is that there are trappings in life. The the stuff that that Dale mentioned last Sunday to us that, that we become all too consumed by. And this stuff becomes more important than our faith in God. As John Calvin said, our our hearts are like an idol factory. And we might laugh when we read the stories of the Israelites 
worshiping this golden cow, and we kind of think, how silly could they be to think there was anything good that could come from that? But you see, for many of us, there are other things in our lives, the stuff of our lives that we soon begin to love more than God. And yet not even that can separate us from his love. The second pair is angels and demons. And I'll confess that I hadn't really picked up on this in previous readings to understand why would angels be included in this list? Well, Paul warns the church in Colossae in in Colossians 2.18 about the worship of angels, and apparently for some, this was a distraction. Perhaps demons are, are no surprise to see in this part of the list. The NIV renders demons, this word it uses, sometimes as earthly and sometimes as spiritual. And regardless, what Paul is helping us to understand is that no earthly being, no spiritual being, could hinder the reach of God's love. The third pair he presents is the present and the future. Theologian E.F. Harrison said, Time is powerless against believers, whether it be the present with its temptations or sufferings or the future with its uncertainties. Church, whatever time brings, the love of God triumphs. Paul here, I think, is helping us again to remember that that nothing within our current context is capable of ripping us out of the loving arms of Jesus. His, His powerful, comforting, trustworthy, calming, everlasting love is with us today. It's with us tomorrow. It's with us every day and the next day and the next day. Do you understand how incredible that is? The fourth pair he looks at is height nor depth. These were terms in Paul's time often used by astrologers. Paul was likely here trying to use this wordplay as an expression of of the means of the immensity of God's love. How vast God's love is. And even in his greatness, even in his throne in heaven, his love reaches down to even the lowliest of Christ's followers here on earth. And then Paul kind of wraps up with a couple of singles looking at anything else in all creation and the love of God. And so Paul now kind of abandons this format and kind of just throws it all out there, leaves it all out on the table, that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Then what Paul is trying to make here, the point he's looking to convey, if I could summarize it in this one point, church, and here it is, nothing is as powerful as our Lord and his love. Let me read it again for us. Nothing is as powerful as our Lord and his love. Can I get an amen, even if you're at home? Just scream at your TV. And let me wrap us up here by looking at our third point, lessons learned. Because I think there's three lessons that we need to take away from this text. And the first lesson is this, that we are called to have an attitude of gratitude. You've heard me say this before, and I don't know how many of you love to admit it when your father-in-law is right. but, But if there's one thing he's taught me, and there's many things he has, but one of the biggest life lessons Charity's dad has helped me to understand is this attitude of gratitude. 
And the Apostle Paul picks up on this and, and introduces it to us in 1 Thessalonians, where he says this. He says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And perhaps why we struggle to be thankful in each and every circumstance we find ourselves in, we do need to realize this, that life is hard, and we will struggle, that the reality is that times are going to be tough. But what Paul is helping us, reminding us, urging us, is that we need to understand and apply the gospel to our lives. So what does that even look like? Well, I think it looks like this. It's remembering that his love never fails us. That his presence is with us permanently by the power of his Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us as believers that we need to remind ourselves, that I need to remind myself, that you need to remind yourself that our identity isn't in our stuff. It isn't in what we do. That our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And lastly, that his mercy and his grace. Well, here's the good news, church. They're new each morning. They're new each morning. The second thing I think we need to, to apply out of this is that we're all called to cultivate thankfulness. You see, I don't think it's always natural for us to live thankful lives. I feel that sometimes there's easier seasons in my life than in others, and, and maybe you feel the same way. That sometimes it's easier said than done. And if you've been following Dale's sermon series for these past few weeks, he's, he's helped us to understand this, this rootedness. That the lives of Christians ought to be deeply rooted in order for them to be greatly fruitful. That rootedness in God brings about this resilience in our lives when we face these storms, these trials, these times of doubt. I couldn't help but thinking of what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Well, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. You see, church, look at what Paul says here. He says that this life of thankfulness is what leads to fruition. That we need to continue to live our lives in him. That if we think for a moment that living for the moment, that living for ourselves, living for these earthly pleasures that are around us at every waking moment is going to bring ultimate lasting fulfillment, then we're, we're fooling ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. But what Paul is saying here is that, that this is an ongoing process. That what this is, is a day by day by day choosing to die to ourselves and instead to live for the glory of God. To say, yes, this stuff is good, but Jesus, you're better. That this stuff is great, but God, you're the greatest. And second, that we must live in him. This Greek word, peripateo, it means to walk. It's this imagery of this step-by-step -step journey in Christ that we are deeply rooted 
and connected to Jesus. And then the last thing I want us to help to apply this morning is that we are called to never forget and to always proclaim. Let me read something for us. My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from old. Things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation. The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. You see, Psalm 78, this psalm we read is is written by Asaph. He was David's worship leader. And it's the second longest psalm in the Psalter other than Psalm 119. And its purpose for being written was really this, was so that Israel would remember that they would never forget their history and what their God had accomplished. And second, it was written so that they would also speak of the great works of God to the future generations. Why? Because it's, it's what we've spent our morning looking at more closely. That indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we are called, you and I, to teach and to preach. So this morning, church, as we, as we gather on this Thanksgiving weekend, I really do want us to say thanks for nothing. That nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in, revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because in the midst of all the hardship and the struggle and the uncertainty these past six months, there has been hope. There is hope, church. There, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's the light of the world. It's Jesus. And so one final time this morning, church, let me turn us to the Psalms. In Psalm 118, this this glorious psalm of praise and declaration, it says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. And so church this morning, we say thanks for nothing because nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I do thank you that on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we declare as the church, thanks for nothing. And nothing will separate us from your love. So wherever we're at this morning, wherever we're at in this journey of faith, even if there are those watching who have yet to even 
accept you, Lord, as, as Savior, Jesus, that I pray that they would ask those questions, that they would wrestle through what does it mean to have you as Savior, to know of this love that we can never be separated by and from. Thank you, Jesus, for this morning, for this day, for this season of thanksgiving. Cultivate in our hearts an attitude of gratitude and a spirit of thankfulness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.